you know, skepticism was just all over the, the nation of England at this point. And uh, they were wondering, is there a God? And so the fashion of the day, uh, especially in the c- circles he was migrating and he was into art, uh, was Impressionism. And Impressionism is really downplaying the reality of physicality. In other words, uh, is the world really real? Is this all a figment of our imagination? You know, All that I'm seeing, is it really only happening inside of my head? And then he wrote this. It was as if I had myself projected the universe from within with its trees and its stars. And that is so near the notion of being God that it manifested even nearer to going mad. Yet I was not mad in any medical or physical sense. I was simply carrying the skepticism of my time as far as I could go. Chiefly by reading authors who have affirmed, first of all, the existence of... uh, of our world, of its basic goodness. He began to emerge out of a state of depression. By the way, when you have this kind of mental orientation going on in your head, it's, uh, it's doing a number to you. And he was battling depression on top of all these things. And so he said, I began to develop a different mindset. I began to express gratitude for life and, and began to become marveling at you know, life's amazing uh, developments and, and the wonders of our world. And Ideas now that were counterculture to the time that he was living in. He was almost becoming a radical in his own time. And, and then he said, taking a first step in the direction of faith, Chesterton now realized that the gift of life far for which he had grown so grateful must have been given by someone. In other words, he, he kind of was processing a thing. And, he, and as he became more thankful for things, he began to realize, well, someone had to create all of this. And he came to this deep realization that there was a God. And to get to know this God. And then later on in his book, uh, Orthodoxy, which he wrote in 1908, he says, he defines Orthodox Christianity as the philosophy of sanity and shows how the Christian belief answers uh, deep modern problems. So he's, he's basically you know, realizing the, the emergence of modernism and then postmodernism. He was kind of a, on the cutting edge, a bit of a philosopher in his thinking. Uh, eventually, you know, he, he, he started sharing that, uh, that uh, one of the examples of how Christianity helps us, you know, integrate reality. In other words, how there, there's, a, there's a spiritual, you know, mystical world out there, but also a, a material present world, is the whole idea of the incarnation, where God becomes flesh. And he said, as, as a matter of fact, Christians believe in the incarnation, believe that matter and spirit, there's an interaction of the two. And it gives Christians a respect both from the rational and the mystical aspects of life. It saves them from the radical doubts that were driving him earlier into a state of depression and almost questioning if he, if he was sane. <clears throat> Truth is not the only thing Christian orthodoxy lavishes on its followers. We get wonder, curiosity, moral and political adventure and religious indignation. And of utmost, to, of course, Chesterton was the fact that we get a creator to whom we can express this gratitude. You ever thought about Thanksgiving? Who are we thankful to? You know, you ever ask that question? Who are we giving thanks to or giving thanks for? You know, obviously someone's helping us beyond ourselves. We're living with many of those same issues that were happening 100 years ago. I think we're just far more deeper into the pattern in our culture today. And so a lot of people are describing our world as a postmodern world or a post-Christian world. And, and you know, one of the great struggles, I think, that, that uh, people are dealing with is, even as Chesterton discovered, that what we believe actually has an impact on our mental and our physical well-being. And we need to understand that. So what we believe is extremely fundamentally important. And I don't talk about belief as an ascent. I'm talking about belief as the wellspring and the essence of who we are and what drives our lives and why we make the decisions, why we do the things we do. That's very powerful. So um, Chesterton came to an amazing faith in God and has written a lot of great stuff and he's worth reading. He, He was a journalist and he challenged a lot of things that I think that we're battling with today. Now, in our nation today, and I want to speak a little bit about you know where we're at as a nation. 
And why I believe that the people I'm looking at today and, and Christians across our nation are some of the most important components of this land. And that when we sang our national anthem, you could see the, the sense of a prayer that it is, right? God keep our land. Isn't that a prayer? It's a, it's a petition to God, you know? They want to, some people want to change our national anthem. They don't like that. You know, this petitioning idea of God, you know. And then, you know, uh, keep, keep us, uh, you know, glorious and free. Beautiful expression, right? Isn't that the desire of our hearts? I think everybody wants to be free. You know, there's that cry in the human heart for that. But we're living in a time where there's, a, there's, there's some cultural values that are clashing with biblical values. And we see that, and it's becoming more evident. As a matter of fact... The battle's becoming so intense that the culture is always, it's shifting and it's embracing what I consider more unhealthy values. And I think we all probably agree with that. But even the church community is beginning to succumb to a lot of the cultural value system. And I want to zero in on that. Why is it so important that we stand for something? You know, I've entitled a sermon to stand for the truth. Why is truth such an important concept? And why is it that, you know, in our culture today, it seems like tolerance has become the primary value. And it seems like truth is the enemy of tolerance. And there's a, there's a conflict that's going on. It's raging. And so I want to look at those, those concepts today. Learning to embrace other people in order to live in harmony is healthy. In other words, I think it's okay that, you know, we have people that we can live with who we don't agree with. You know, to learn to agree to disagree, to learn to live in a society that we can work together, even though we don't might always agree with one another, is actually a healthy way to live. You know, the idea of everybody has to think the same way, you know, I think we've confused unity with uniformity. And uniformity is just, you know, everybody gets into the same mold, but, you know, there's no real unity whatsoever. We're just all being compressed. We're being pressured. As a matter of fact, Paul writes that in the book of Romans. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't allow society, J.B. Phillips says, to be, you know, pressured or molded into the society's value system. And isn't that the pressure that we're feeling? You know, if you're a, if you're a, a biblically oriented person, you have a biblical worldview, there's a pressure to conform to the values of our culture today. Embracing non-biblical values in order to live in harmony are going to only produce very destructive aspects to life. Uh, it's not going to help our country. But that's the present value of our Canadian context. And uh, we need to understand that. To be seen to be dogmatic, truth-based is portrayed in our culture to be unloving and unkind. How many know that's true? If you, if you actually have strong views, then you're considered intolerant and unloving. It's all being equated together. And, and that's a problem because what we need to understand is that, you know, because we have convictions, because we, have, we, we don't always agree with certain values in our culture, does not mean that we're being unkind and unloving. As a matter of fact, I think we've gotten a confusion of what true love is all about, and we're going to unpack that just a little bit more today. Uh, I think we're living in a culture that we're more concerned about feelings than we are about facts. We're more concerned about fitting in rather than standing up for what's right or true, you know. Um, and that truth today is seen as a conditional thing based on each, each person's individual value and has no, there's no absolute element to it. And that's the problem when you come to biblical Christianity because there's a sense of an absolute element to it. And that's where the conflict is. And so we're struggling with this idea of tolerance and intolerance. And our culture speaks highly about being tolerant and ridicules what they would consider a sense of intolerance. And yet there is an element in our culture that's so damaging to people and it's simply that when we are tolerant towards sin, we're actually you know, creating the very destructive elements. And so when I think of the Canadian you know, anthem, you know, you know, we stand on guard for thee. What we so often think of is we're standing on guard against foreign, some sort of foreign domination. But the real issue is it's an internal problem that we're trying to stand up for. That's where we need to take our stand. We need to take our stand within our culture because if we don't, what will eventually happen is we'll succumb to everything. And uh, we will fall. And isn't it interesting, you know, a few weeks ago we had that terrible windstorm. We, we, we all recall that, right? That was amazing. 
And a lot of these trees that were diseased on the inside, they looked good on the outside, but when the wind came along, because there was weakness on the inside, those trees were decimated in no time flat. And I I think that's a very vivid picture of our culture today. As we allow the disease of sin to take root in the midst of our culture, what's going to happen is that eventually we're going to have external pressure, and we are going to succumb very quickly to that external pressure because we have no internal strength. And so that's why it's so important as Christians, as, as biblical people, as people of value of the Word of God, that we are strong and that we are living out our biblical convictions in meaningful ways in our community so that people can see the life and the love and the truth of, the, of our Christian experience and, and have an impact in people's lives around us. You know, it's interesting, uh, a number of years ago, a guy by the name of Peter James Lee uh, you know, he basically made a decision to embrace uh, a false concept in order to have harmony or a lack of division. And so he basically embraced a non-biblical value system. And we can take a look at this idea of heresy. You know, heresy is simply a distortion of truth. We need to understand Satan has never created anything. The adversary of our souls. He's not a creator. He's a distorter and all he does is take the good things of God and distorts them in such a way that they no longer have their saving, powerful effect in people's lives. The result of embracing heresy is not freedom, but it's bondage. When we embrace a lie, it doesn't set us free. One of the sad things is our culture wants to embrace the lies so that they tell everybody they're okay to be unhealthy. And I'm saying that's not going to set people free, folks. You know, sometimes truth is painful. How many know that's, that's true? It can be very painful sometimes. You know, it's like doing surgery and eradicating something that's wrong in our system. It's painful at the time, but it, it's eventually life-giving. And we need to understand that truth is designed to bring life. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. So it's very important that we embrace the truth. And it's not just intellectualizing it, that we apply that truth into our lives so we can experience the fruit of that truth in our lives. We get the results of it. Uh, So uh, this guy, Peter James Lee, he was voting to approve the appointment of an openly gay bishop in their their church. And I, I don't even know if he even agreed with the lifestyle, but what he was basically, why he made the decision. Here was his premise. He said it this way, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism or division, always choose heresy. Now, that is a wrong idea. See, we're afraid that if we stand up for what's right, people will be alienated. And what we need to understand, and and Jesus said that. He said, I've come to bring a sword. We forget that. Now, he's not talking about, you know, he's, he's causing us to rise up in a militaristic way. But what he's basically saying is when you stand for the truth, that truth becomes a, a divisive thing and it even splits apart families. You know, and Jesus said that. Even your households will be divided because some of you might stand for what's right and other people are capitulating to what's wrong and there's a division in that household. It's a very challenging situation to be in. It's difficult. We need to understand that. And yet we're called to do what? We're called to stand for the truth. We're called to speak the truth. But yet it's modified in the book of Ephesians. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. Okay, so truth is an important component to the scriptures. And we need to understand that. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the personification of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. So truth has a high value in in the scriptures. So we need to be reminded that unity at the expense of truth is compromised and of such a nature is that it changes the very nature of the church. And that's the scary part. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. But one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You know, it's, it's, it's the whole enchilada, folks. You've got to embrace the whole thing. You can't just take parts of it, the parts you like. You have to embrace all of it. And that's what we need to understand, you know. You know, the, the scriptures have to be applied to us. We don't just pick and choose is what I'm getting at and take what we want out of it, you know. Because then, then we, we don't have biblical Christianity. We have a, a false understanding of Christianity. And I, and I think some people actually create a God after their own image rather than embracing the God of the scriptures. And that becomes a major problem. 
Our culture celebrates tolerance, and yet there's an irony. There's one area that our culture becomes intolerant towards. Okay, as high of a value that tolerance is, and, and that one area is simply regarding the issue of truth. And have you ever wondered why? Why is it that people are intolerant of the truth? Because if you don't have the truth, what do you have? You have falsehood. You have lies, right? And so falsehood cannot live with truth, nor can truth coexist with that which is false. These two things, truth and error, are mutually exclusive to each other. They're, they're, they're not going to function together. They displace each other. And then it says this, and what is even more striking is that love itself creates a tension between truth and evil. By the way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm equating falsehood to evil. See, I think lies are evil. I think lies are destructive. I think lies destroy relationships. Lies destroy us. If we believe a lie, we're not free. And isn't, you know, one of the things in our culture is that, you know, you know, they, you know the idea is that we just live and let live, you know. I'll do my thing, you do your thing. Nobody bothers anybody. We all just keep doing our own thing. The only problem is our lives clash with other people's lives. And it creates all kinds of havoc. You know, you can't just live this thing out. It doesn't work. And, you know, we have a wrong understanding of what love is. We think that allowing people to do the wrong things is a loving thing to do. Can I just say that's a lie? As a matter of fact, Paul defines what love is in 1 Corinthians. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Right? So, you know, to let people do their own thing is not a loving thing to do at all. As a matter of fact, God doesn't do that. One of, the, one of the tests to know if I'm a child of God or not is the fact that God disciplines me or not. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews teaches, chapter 12? You know, if God's disciplining me, I can rejoice. I'm a child of His. He's not going to let me do anything. You know, if God's just letting me do my own thing, it's because I'm not His kid. You know? So we should have a sense in our lives that I can't get away with some things. Maybe other people can, but I can't. Because the moment I try to pull something like that, I have the Holy Spirit going, what are you doing? You know? Anybody relate to that? Have a little conversation here. You can't do that. That's not allowed for you. You know? And if you try to do that, good luck. You know, you're going to feel terrible. You're going to, you know, and the Holy Spirit's at work in those situations. So what I'm going to do this morning is I want us to turn to Galatians. We're going to look at a few verses of Scripture and take a look at this in a context of freedom and this idea of what's true and what's not true and what we need to stand for and what we need to stand up against. And in chapter 4 of the book of Galatians, Galatians is really an argument against reverting back to Judaism. And these believers in Galatia were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people. So one of the Jewish identification markers you know, is that they were circumcised. That was an identification of being Jewish. And so what Paul is arguing is that we don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christians. And this is not depreciating Jewish people. I mean, if you're a Jewish person, go ahead and be Jewish. I would even argue for that in the 21st century. It's okay to be Jewish. What you need to do, though, is embrace Jesus as the Messiah. That's, that's your responsibility. But as a Gentile, I don't need to go under the law. As a matter of fact, what he's arguing against is that if I think that, by, that somehow by observing and obeying the law, that somehow I'm going to obtain favor with God, Paul's saying, don't waste your time. It's not going to happen. There's only one individual that's ever lived on this planet who was able to keep the law. His name is Jesus. He was sinless. He did it. The rest of us, good luck. Have you ever tried it? You know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis once said, it's really easy to be bad, but it's really hard to be good. Anybody relate to that? You know, just try being good for a while. You know, after a while, you, have, you get challenged, you know, to do the right thing. Especially when you see people doing the wrong thing and getting away with it and seem to be getting ahead. That's temptation, right? No, you can't do that. You know, or somebody's pushing your buttons and you want to react. God's saying, no, I want you to pray for them. Well, yeah, but I'd rather just take, take them out, Lord, you know? You know? I, I'd rather not forgive them. You should see the way they're treating me. God says, no, I want you to bless them. How many really feel happy when somebody's treated you poorly and God says, would you go over there and bless them? You're just, I just really feel like doing that, God. I really feel good about that. You see, how many of you say, I, 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 you know, if I'm going to be a true Christian, I can't always let my emotions dictate my actions, Right? Because you'll be doing the wrong things at times. And then later on, your emotions will go, why'd you do that? See what happens and you don't obey God's word. You're going to feel bad. Let's take a look at Galatians 5. It starts out in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. In other words, what Christ has done for the believers is a command 
to stand firm in that freedom, to be vigilant in that freedom and not to lose it. In other words, there's a potential that you could succumb and go back into bondage. And that's what Paul's talking about. So to embrace the law as a means to gain God's approval or favor would to be lose the freedom that we have in Christ, our belief in Christ. Walter Hansen, as a New Testament scholar, says Paul uses the word yoke as it was often used by his contemporaries, referring to the yoke of the law. In other words, you're bound to the law. So Peter now is in, the, in, a, in a gathering with other believers in Jerusalem, and they're having this huge discussion, and it's a major point of contention in the early church because they were all Jewish, and now Gentiles are becoming Christians, and the argument is... What do Gentiles have to do in order to be a Christian? Okay? That's the big argument. And a lot of Jewish people are saying, well, they've got to be circumcised and they have to become Jews before they become Christians. And Peter and Paul are arguing, no, that's not what God's doing at all. As a matter of fact, Peter says this, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentile disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? In other words, we couldn't keep the law. Why are you trying to put them under the law? They're not going to be able to do it. We never did it. You know, it's faith in Christ that brings us freedom. Why don't we just let them go there? And then they gave some rather, you know, there's a few conditions. They said, no, if they do these things, that's enough. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews. So in contrast, we have the yoke of slavery under the law of Christ. You know, you're going to have to be a servant of something. This is a, there's a myth that we have that we can do our own thing. no. You either serve Christ and righteousness and obedience to the word of God or you're serving sin. And whatever you serve, you become its slave. And so, but he says here in Matthew, Matthew tells us this in chapter 11, he says, my yoke is easy. Jesus is saying this, and my burden is light. In other words, this is the, this is the way to really experience freedom. Freedom is serving me. That's what Jesus is teaching us. So, We're going to take a look this morning at two appeals to live in spiritual freedom. The first one is simply based on accepting and embracing Christ. It's a very simple principle. Uh, And, you know, when you've you've not grown up in a a gospel-preaching environment, you may not know this, but this this is the good news. And it's so simple. If I want to gain God's approval, all I need to do is trust in what Christ has done for us. It's as simple as that. Jesus' death is the means of freedom. And there's nothing that needs to be added to that. What a beautiful thought. What a simple thought. And Paul says this in Galatians earlier in the book. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness or being in a right relationship with God could be gained through the law, then Christ didn't need to bother coming. We don't need Christ. That's what he's saying. But you know, the fact that Jesus had to come and die is the fact that you and I couldn't keep the law. That's why he came. So you have a choice. Are you going to trust yourself in being able to obey all the precepts of the law? Are you just going to trust Christ who did it for you? A lot easier to just trust trust Christ. So Paul begins by pointing out that being circumcised, which is that physical expression of keeping the law as a special status or privilege or position with God, has no value whatsoever. Verse 2, he says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. In other words, you're rejecting what God has now brought on the scene. All of the law was pointing to Christ, he's trying to tell them. It's all being fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 3, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. Wow. And then he says in chapter 3, think about it. If you want to obey the whole law and then you fail to obey the law, then you come under the curse of the law, which is what? Death. And so that's why he points out in chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He died for us. He died in our place. He's a substitute. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's being hung on a tree. Paul then goes out and talks about the seriousness of what they were about to do or had already done. In other words, what are you doing? Are you trusting the law? Are you trusting Christ? Verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Ooh, this is a powerful statement. You know, you get all kinds of theological discussion about, you know, the ability or the inability to fall away from grace. But here's what I think we need to recognize. There are warnings in the scriptures about 
the work of grace in our lives. And we have to take this stuff seriously. You can't just act like they're not there. You know, I, you know, I think of the book of Hebrews that warns against apostatizing or turning your back on God. And Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So what's happening now is that, you know, you can start out right, but then there's, you know, what does the devil do? He doesn't create anything. He comes along and distorts truth. And that's when people get messed up in the Christian life. There's a, just a bit of a distortion of truth, and then you get two, two, two distinct distortions. I'll give them to you really quickly. One distinction is that you fall into legalism. That, you know, you have to, it's, it's you doing, 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 somehow merit something before God. If I don't do my part, God's not going to bless me. Okay? So you get into that legalistic mindset, you know, it's, it's, it becomes the work of the law in a sense. And then you go to the other side, and it's this idea that, hey, don't worry about it. God takes care of everything. I can relax. You know, it's almost license, you know. You become antinomianistic, which means against the law. What we need to understand is the Holy Spirit's going to help us. What, the law is trying to teach us what God requires. The Holy Spirit's going to help you live right. That's what we need to understand. So that's the other extreme. You know, I don't, I just, I live a careless life, okay? So I live a rigid life or I live a careless life. You say, well, what's the right way to live, Pastor? I live a life of trusting Christ. So it's not me trying harder, it's me trusting Christ. So how many here, you know, you're really trying to do the right thing and the good thing and you're messing up. And what you need to do is come to God and say, Lord, listen, I'm struggling with this. Anybody struggle with things? Anybody ever have a struggle? Okay, some of you are honest. Yeah, I got some struggles. I say, take your struggles to Jesus. Say, Lord, I'm really struggling this. Would you help me? Your spirit's living in me. Give me the strength to be an overcomer. Give me the strength to do the right thing. You know, help me to get my act together. And you know, God will hear that cry and he will help you because you're trusting in him. It's not, I'm trying harder and I'm on the other side, I'm, I'm being careless. I could care less. No, it's like I'm trusting you day by day. Wow, that's very powerful. Then Paul points out that the means to grace comes from faith in Christ. It says, by faith, verse 5, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. We're waiting for that which we're, you know, we're standing before God in a right relationship. But how many go, wouldn't it be nice one day? We finally get to, you know, we finally get there. We get to the end goal. We're now the kind of person God wants us to become. We're finally, we're journeying there. That's, that's the Christian life. We should be moving towards a goal that we're becoming more Christ-like. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That's the goal. That that's, that's, should be our aim in life. I want to be more like Jesus. Okay? Then he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's not the issue, he said. He said, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So how do we know? What's the real marker? If... if to be Jewish, the marker is circumcision. That's my identifying marker that I'm Jewish. What's the identifying marker as a Christian? How do people identify? How do they know that I'm a Christian? Love. Love. You said it. See, listen to what John writes in John chapter 15. He says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. That you have what? Love for one another. So, you know what? I should be living a life of love. And, you know, it's easy for me to say, oh, I really love God, Pastor. Or I could tell you, I, I really love God. But if I treat people poorly and I'm not loving towards other people, I'm just fooling myself. See, the end result of genuine faith is a loving heart. Isn't that beautiful? That's the true marker. So that's what we need to be looking at in our lives. Am I, more, am I becoming a more loving person? A more forgiving, a kind, compassionate person? I'm becoming less self-centered. I'm becoming more unselfish. Those are the beautiful markers that we should be looking at in our lives. But let me move on to the second appeal that Paul is making. And it's basically in identifying and rejecting falsehood. So first of all, you know, I accept the right track. I'm trusting Christ. But now, there's, you know, if you do that, you're going to have to stand. Okay? Now, we sing this beautiful anthem, I stand on guard for thee. So I'm standing on guard for others. I'm standing on guard for a nation. I'm standing on guard for other people. But it has to start with I'm standing on guard for myself. And I'm standing on guard that I'm not being seduced and deceived by a value structure that's imposing itself on a biblical worldview. 
And right now in Canada, that's what's happening. And the real battle isn't so much that the culture's moving in a, in a direction that we say, hey, this is not Christian at all. What is really scary is that a lot of Christians are beginning to embrace this value system and think that they're still Christians. There's a synergism going on. <clears throat> and what I'm trying to get across is, if you and I are going to stand for ourselves, number one, we need to know what God stands for. And so, first thing I need to do, this, this is a practical, I'm going to give you something really practical to consider. If you become a daily Bible reader, a daily Bible, you discipline yourself, you do that daily, you know what's going to happen? Your brain is going to start thinking differently. You're going to begin to think the way, you're going to start looking at life through a lens. And by the way, we're all looking at life through a lens right now. You're looking at life through your past experiences. You're looking at life through what you've learned in school. You're looking at your life through the lens of your family, backgrounds, your parents. You're looking at the lens through your education. You're looking at the lens through the scriptures. So you have to decide which lens am I going to look at life through. And if you look at life through a biblical lens, you're going to see things totally differently. You know, we all have a shade on our lenses. We're looking at it. If we look at life through God's lens, it becomes a transforming lens. That's the powerful thing about it. It begins to change us. I know what God expects of me. I know what he wants in my life. I know what I want in my life. I I begin to align my agenda and purposes and will with God's purposes and will. See, not my will, but yours be done, right? But, you know... And, and if you do this on a daily basis, it, it's just like I keep making these minor corrections and you know I I'm, I'm keep making little adjustments. But if I'm not doing that, and I only come to church once a week or once a month, you know, and I, I don't read the Bible, I'm quite careless there, you know, eventually you're being bombarded every single day by a cultural lens. And you're going to begin to think the way the rest of the culture thinks. And a lot of the church now is embracing that because, you know, they've done studies. Only about 20% of Christians are daily Bible readers. So 80% are all over the map in their thinking. And that's why the church is actually succumbing to the culture. And see, we always think that, you know, we just got to get more people, you know, in the church. That'll change them. I'm going, no, we have to get Christ in the people. And that's what changes them. And we have to have people to surrender to Christ's lordship and get on his page and say, not my will, but yours be done, and begin to discipline our lives so that we become renewed in our minds. We become a changed person. We embrace God's value system. Then we become like that little <clears throat> dynamic you know, person that's going to influence and impact the lives of other people. <clears throat> and that's what's going to change our culture, by the way. See, I used to think when I was a younger pastor, we just have to have more people serving God and it will change the whole culture. And I'm going, and in my mind, that was more people in the church. But I'm going, no, it's not, it's not how many people are in the church. It's what's happening to the people in the church. You see the difference? You see, you have to be changed. You have to be transformed. That's what's got to change things. You know, we have to have an experience with God. We've got to be transformed by God. We have to have God's mindset. So we have to choose. Do we want to stand on guard for our own soul? And how many know the moment you make this decision, I'm going to stand up for God, all hell breaks loose? That's true. You know, read Ephesians chapter 6. You know, you put on the full armor of God. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. That tells me if you have opposition, you're probably standing in the truth. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel this opposition. If you don't feel any opposition, you've got to check, hey, am I alive? You know, is there a pulse here? Is anything happening in my life? So what I want to do here in just a moment is just zip through five identifications of false teaching. Because what Satan is trying to do is actually distort the message. Because the gospel is the good news. It's the message that brings life to people. So the enemy comes along and all he wants to do is just nudge it a bit. You know, get, get it off course just a little bit. Because then, if it's off course a little bit, eventually it loses its power. It no longer is light illuminating darkness. It's no longer salt preserving decay. See, that's the goal. So number one, we see the false teachers try to keep Christians from obeying the truth in Christ. Isn't that interesting? Look how he says it in verse 7. You were running a good race. He uses the metaphor of a race now. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and and kept you from obeying the truth? So the enemy wants to cut in on our race with God. We're running this race, right? He wants to cut in and take us off the race course. 
And he does that by tempting us to disobey the truth. How many think truth now is important? You see that? He wants to cut in right there. And so, uh, you know, you say, well, how does he do that, Pastor? How does the enemy work at this? Well, here's what I would say to you. Interesting. I'm glad you asked this question. Psalm 1 says something very interesting. He says, blessed is the person who does what? Doesn't do what? He doesn't walk, stand, and sit. With whom? With, With the people who are ungodly. The people who have an ungodly worldview. So if I'm always, you know, how many know if you're, how many have ever run a race and, you know, it's, and you're, and you're, and you know, you see it in the Olympics a lot of these times, they're running maybe a 1500 meters and the runners are all bunched up. Remember that? And last time I noticed a couple of guys go down. How many have seen that people have fallen because they, they trip over each other. They're too close to it. They're bunched up. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can get so bunched up with a bunch of people who have a wrong way of looking at life. I'm not suggesting we withdraw from the culture. I'm just saying, be careful where you're running. You need to run a strategic race in the Christian life. You have to start thinking, you know, I've got to run this right. And so I have to make sure that I have some space in my lanes to run right. And I can't be, you know, tripping over all these people who are, you know, my, my closest friends who are speaking the, you know, untruth. You know, as a pastor, I had to make some choices in, over these years. And one time we were kind of with a couple, and I noticed, I said to my wife, I came home one day, and I said, you know what? I'm noticing they're running in a different lane. That's what I said. They're running in a different lane. We're running in a different lane. And I said, you know, it's really hard to maintain a relationship with people who are going off in the wrong direction. I can't do it anymore. I'm not going, I'm not running down that lane. That's not where I'm at. I'm running down this lane. I'm going to find other people running down the same lane and spend more time with them. And, you know, if you're a wise person, you got to choose your relationships carefully. That doesn't mean I don't know a lot of people. It doesn't mean I want to not relate to unbelievers. I do. I like relating to people. But I know that closest friends need to be godly. And you say, you know, we only have so many friends in life. You can have a lot of acquaintances. But I have a criteria. I'll give you my criteria for developing who my friends are. My friends are the people who, when I'm with, they want, I, I want to be a better person. When I'm around that person... There's something about their life that challenges me to go to another level, to live at a higher level. I go, those are the people I want to hang with. Wise people hang with wise people. They become wiser still, right? So you've got to choose. Very, you know, we don't, we're not always thinking when we make these decisions. And young people, they make those poor decisions. And you see it. I'm a parent. You know, I can always tell when my girls hung with different people. I go, oh, yeah, she hung out with so-and-so today. She goes, well, how do you know I hang out with them? Well, just by your attitude. You know, you pick up where other people are coming from. You can read where people are hanging, you know. And, you know, it's it's really amazing. You can hang with a really godly person. Somebody comes home and you go, I know who you were with today. Just the way you're talking and thinking. You're being shaped. You're being influenced. So it's very important. So he's warning them. He says here, you know, who cut in on you? In other words, who have you been running with? Because they're tripping you up. They're thinking the wrong way. Number two, false teachers use persuasive words to drown out the call of God on a person's life. Look at verse 8. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. So who calls people? God does. So this persuasion is not coming from God. Where is it coming from? Well, it's coming from the opposite. And Satan uses people just like God uses people. Isn't that true? How many know that's true? You know, if I am not careful, if people, are even Christians, sometimes Satan can use us. Really? Well, listen to Peter. He's he's rebuking Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I have to die on the cross. Peter goes, not so, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Peter. No, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter identifies the, you know, what sounded like a loving thing was actually the wrong thing. And Jesus picks up and identifies where this source is coming from. It's coming from the pit of hell. So... He's, he's the father of life. False teachers try to seek control over the entire church. Isn't that amazing? He changes the metaphor from a race to baking. Now, I've, I've actually baked bread. How many have ever baked bread? Anybody, anybody ever made bread? I've made bread. Okay. What, what's one of the ingredients? You've got to put yeast in. Why do you do that? So the bread will rise, right? It expands. How many have ever put too much yeast in? Wow, you could have a real exciting moment cleaning that up. 
I mean, it's going to explode, right? So Paul says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. So all it takes is a little lie wrapped in truth to distort the truth. Have to be very careful. Have to pay attention. What are we saying here? And then, in another context, he, Paul is speaking of tolerating and embracing known sin. This is what he says to the Corinthians. You know, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And he says, not only that, you guys are tolerating it. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? In other words, if you and I don't address sin in our own souls and if we don't you know, address these things and identify them, they become a corrupting influence. And Satan tries to corrupt whole churches this way. You know, and that happens. Let me move on here. Fourthly, false teachers create a lot of confusion and discouragement in churches. He says, verse 10, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Confusion. Wow. When people are confused, I go, I know where that's coming from. Because the Bible tells you that in the book of James, chapter 3. It says, confusion is a work of the devil. You know, he brings confusion. Where there's confusion, there's every evil kind of work. So, you know, I go, if, you don't, if you're confused about something, I would just stop. Don't do anything. Start praying. Lord, confusion's not of you. Bring clarity to the situation. And God will. You know, we just have to use a little wisdom. You know, don't go half-cocked when you're confused. You're going to cause a lot of problems. And a lot of times we say and do things when, and we don't even know the whole story. It's important to get the whole story. How many know that's true? And I've been a pastor for a long time. You know what I notice? One person comes in and tells me something. And then later on, somebody else comes in and tells me something. And another person comes in and tells me something. After a while, I go, wow, if I would have just listened to the first person, I wouldn't have had the whole story. There's more to the story. You've got to listen to a whole bunch of stories. And then you start putting it all together and going, I'm starting to get an idea what's going on here. But, you know, everybody, Proverbs says the first person always sounds right. Right? You know? And if they're really wound and they're really excited, they'll come in and, man, they'll try to get you going. And then you just sit and listen. And I just be, I'm trying to be patient and listen to it all. And then I, then I try to find out the other side of the story. And usually there is another side. And then there's a third side. And then there's a fourth and fifth side. And then I start, okay, there's a bigger picture here. Right? Don't get too excited. You know, and finally, the false teachers spread reports about genuine spiritual leaders. They want to discredit the true leader in order to advance their own agenda. And that's what was happening. Listen, Paul says in verse 11, Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, I think what was happening is Paul had circumcised Timothy. Remember that? But Timothy was partly Jewish. And Paul did it so that he could have a ministry among the Jews. But earlier in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and in verse 3, you know, we read this, that not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So in other words... You know, Paul made some distinctions, and he was basically saying, look, if you're Jewish, fine, be circumcised. That's who you are. But if you're a Gentile, you don't need to be. Titus was a Gentile. He didn't need to be circumcised. And Paul was consistent, and he basically said, look, if I'm preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Because, you know, circumcision, it's not, we're not just talking about the physical operation here. What we're talking about is what it represented. And John Stott challenges us with this application. He says, uh, to preach circumcision is to tell sinners that they can save themselves by their own good works. To preach Christ crucified is to tell them that they cannot and that only Christ can save them through the cross. The message of circumcision is inoffensive, popular, and flattering. The message of Christ crucified is, however, offensive to human pride, unpopular because it's unflattering. Now let me just... Say it this way. If you tell people that they're sinners, they don't, they don't really like that. How many know that's true? Nobody wants to be told they're a sinner, right? Everybody here goes, yeah, I really, I really enjoy being told I'm a sinner. <laughs> no. Actually, most people I meet, everybody thinks they're a good person. Most people I meet, they think they're a good person. Or they'll say, it, I'm not as bad as this other person. And then there are a few people that are so broken, they know they're a sinner. You know, Right? So those are the three categories. But a lot of people don't see themselves as sinners. They see themselves as good people, good guys. We have a lot of good guys in Canada, right? But a lot of good people are going to end up in hell. hate to tell them that, but that's reality. Because here's the problem. 
the good news of the gospel is for sinners. And so if I'm denying I'm a sinner, it's not for me. So it's really hard to come to that place in our lives where we go, man, I'm a sinner. It takes the conviction of God's spirit to make us realize that I can't do all good all the time. I'm just not that good. And I actually need a savior. And, I, and that's really powerful because what it does is it breaks a very important element in our soul. It's called pride. How many know we battle with pride? Pride has to be destroyed in our lives. And so the more you get to know Christ, what happens is the more you recognize you're a sinner. It's, it's almost like when you're in darkness, you can't see anything. You're, it's dark, right? You're in the night. You don't see the problems. It's dark. But how many know on the full day of the sun is shining, it's daytime, you see everything differently. How many know that's true? Nighttime, daytime. In the light, you see a lot more than you do in the dark. How many go, that's, that's obvious, Pastor. Well, that's the metaphor the Bible uses. And so the closer I get to God, the more I know I'm a sinner. That's been my experience. I've been a Christian 42 years. The closer I get to God, the more I see myself as a sinner. And here's the anomaly, the less I start sinning. The further I am from God, the less I see myself as a sinner, and yet the more I sin. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting anomaly, isn't it? But that's what happens. And we need to understand that. So what is he saying? He's saying that Paul's message was offensive because it brings humanity up short, but it elevates God. But at the end of the day, you recognize your need for a Savior. You come to Him for forgiveness. He's the one that changes you. And what's the end result? It's not pride. It's, it's gratitude and humility. You recognize, boy, isn't God good to me? I didn't deserve this. God showed me his grace and favor. So having said all of that on this Canada Day, I'm basically saying this to us. We are going to be confronted in this day and age if we stand for the truth. How many say that's true? I will even argue that you will experience a measure of persecution if you stand for the truth. I would say to us, be careful how you stand for the truth. We need to do it in a loving way. Okay? That's, that's the middle ground again. You know, Sometimes Christians, we are our own worst enemies. We're, con- we're condemning people who are already condemned. We don't need to condemn them. They're already there. Our job is to present a message of hope to people who are lost. So stop cursing the darkness is not doing any good. Bring them the light, okay? What I'm really saying is as a church, as believers, be careful. We don't embrace the value system of our culture and bring it into the church and dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is for us to stand up for what's true and right. And when you don't change it, and when people eventually are confronted with the truth, the truth can set them free. Let's stand this morning. You know, as I was thinking about this message today, and I was thinking about points in history, and you know, if if you know me, I love history. And I think we have to learn from history. And I was thinking back to the early 1920s in Germany. And in Germany in the early 1920s, Germany was a Christian country. The Reformation started in Germany, primarily through Martin Luther, right? A lot of Lutherans. They had sent missionaries out. It was a Christian nation. Yeah, they were struggling economically. There were problems in their land. But there was tensions. There was tensions politically on the right and on the left. On the left, you had socialism expressed through communism. On the right, you had a political party beginning to emerge called fascism, or what we would know as Nazism. And the nation who had been the heart of Christianity had a small group of people who took over that nation politically. And before long, you know, we saw the rise of Nazism in Germany. You know what was tragic? That early on, the church, for the most part, got deceived. The majority of Christians in Germany thought Hitler was a good thing. How many know that? They embraced him. I would say two-thirds or more embraced Nazism as the answer to their nation's ills, and they saw Hitler as Christ's answer to their nation's problems. How many think that's bizarre? This guy's an antichrist, and they saw him as a Christian. They were deceived. Some of the Christians stood up to this. 
people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Niemöller, we could go on and talk about different people, stood up. Some of them were put in prison. You know, one day, Martin Niemöller later on, because he didn't stand up right away, he wrote this powerful statement, and he said this. He said, first they came for the socialists, the communists in other words, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. In other words, he had saw this erosion happening to the values and what was going on in his society. He didn't do anything until it was too late. And let's pray today that as Christians, we will not just stand by and watch the erosion of our nation, that we will not watch, just stand by and watch the erosion of our of the scriptures and of our culture. That we have to make a decision as a believer. You know what? It starts with us. Step one, where am I at? You know? And am I spending time with God every day? Am I developing a biblical worldview? That's question number one. Number two, who am I listening to? Am I walking with the wise and becoming wise, or am I listening to the voice of you know, of the lies and eventually succumb to those lies. You know, we have those choices to make. Just remember the words of Jesus. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. We need to hear that. And so I'm telling you, truth is really important today. In a, in a society that depreciates truth, we need to stand for it. We need to stand for it in our own personal lives and in the lives of those that we love. And we need to ask God, where do I need to stand in our nation? And there'll come a moment. We'll all have to make a choice. We'll all be having to stand. There'll be a pressure. There'll be opposition. Am I prepared to stand? And so let's ask God for His grace to be able to stand for truth in our personal daily lives in our families, and ultimately in our community and in our nation. So with every head bowed, let's just ask God to help us today. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for a nation that we've had this amazing level of freedom. We thank you to this point we've had a freedom to express our religious convictions. But Lord, we see times are changing, and if we're wise, we see it. And Lord, help us not to capitulate and embrace the cultural values that are against you, Not everything is against you, but some things are. Help us to stand for what is right and true and lovely and pure and good. Help us to do it in a loving and a gracious and in a meaningful way, Father. Help us, O God, to be light in a world of darkness. Help us to be salt in a world that's decaying, Father. Help us, O God, to be so impacted by your presence that we will burn deep within and bring these little embers into the lives of others, oh God, so that we can see people experiencing life-giving transformation. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.